thing to fail. Archbishop Cushing of Boston used to say, always plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. General Eisenhower used to say, in preparing for battle, I've always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Now, we're at the very end of 1 Corinthians 16, uh, the very end of the book of Corinthians, 1 16, uh, verses 5 through 24. And 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 24 can seem uh, disjointed, it can seem disparate, but there are three keys uh, to understanding it. The passage finds its coherence around three subjects, and those are plans, clans, and commands. Plans, clans, and commands. That is, Paul gives us five verses focusing on his future ministry plans. And then he speaks of a series of, of comings and goings of, or greetings to, various clans. And interspersed among those two are a handful of commands. This Sunday, we're going to focus on the first five verses, and we're going to delve into the Christian position as it pertains to planning. Many saints are confused, I think, on this point, to the point that it, that it leads to either a wild recklessness that leaves one directionless, for there really is no plan, or there's such a rigid adherence to the plan uh, that, that it deafens us to the timely and needed adjustments that come from God's Spirit along the way. Basically, we're either too flippant about planning or we're too inflexible. And both of those can lead us away from God's perfect plan. And so as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to help us get a biblical handle on some biblical principles regarding the Christian position as it pertains to planning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite You this morning to speak through Your Word. As we get to the very end of epistles, we get to sections that we don't give adequate thought about. We, we kind of assume that they are just you know, greetings to people we don't know and, and a few little words here and there that are not perhaps as substantive as some of the major subjects that form the heart and core of an epistle. And yet we believe that this is God's Word to us, that all Scripture is useful for correcting and rebuking and teaching and training, that the man or woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that as we come today to a subject that many Christians haven't really tried to biblically consider, which is, what does the Bible say about planning? I pray that we would really digest and ingest and, and walk in biblical truth going forward when it comes to the Christian position regarding planning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God to us is in 1 Corinthians 16, starting at verse 5. The Bible says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. 
For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. And now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. And I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and of uh, Fortunatus and of uh, Achaicus because they have made up for my absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So, verses 5 through 9 give us a wealth of biblical counsel on the Christian position regarding planning, which brings us to point one of our three-part sermon series here, and it deals with plans. Number one, regarding plans. And the first thing we see from the passage is letter A today. Christians can and should make plans. Christians can, that is, we're authorized to, and indeed we're encouraged to. Christians can and should make plans. The Apostle Paul's powerful, fruitful ministry was not some haphazard stagger to whomever happened to be in front of him, wherever he randomly happened to be, whenever he got around to being there. Scripture is clear that Paul put thought into where he ought to go and when he ought to go there. Listen to verse 5 and see all the planning within Paul's thinking. I will visit you, he's going to go back to Corinth, after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia. That's his plan. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. His plan is I'd like a lot of time and winter would be a good time so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. His plan was to ultimately leave there and go somewhere else and they could help him materially get to be the missionary where he was supposed to be next. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. His plan isn't just to be in for a moment his plan is to do something significant when he's with them. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. 
The Lord is sovereign even in his planning. Verse 8, but I will stay in Ephesus. So where I am right now, I'm going to stay all the way till Pentecost. Why? Verse 9, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. The first thing you need to see here is I want you to notice that the man of God makes plans of God. I point this out because there are some saints who think that to be spiritual, you must be spontaneous. That that to be led by the Spirit somehow means to fly by the seat of your pants. But that conjecture is not actually supported by Scripture. The Old Testament tells us in Proverbs 13, 16, Proverbs 13, 16, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. Uh, The Bible is saying, hey, be prudent, have a plan. Uh, based on the knowledge that you have at hand. And this is no anomaly. We see the same sentiment elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, in Proverbs 21.5, the Bible speaks directly of plans. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste, that is a lack of planning, leads to poverty. So here the Bible commends the diligent planner and it castigates the the hasty, haphazard meanderer of life. So so what do we say then to that that well-meaning saint uh, who argues that, well, it's unbiblical to plan? Well, this, I think, is God's response to those who prompt you to be impromptu as the go-to position for the Christian in regards to planning. Proverbs 27.12 is a good verse to remind our brothers who might say that planning is unbiblical. Proverbs 27.12 says, The prudent see danger, and they take refuge. They make a plan. But the simple keep going and suffer for it. If, If there's a lion in your way and you stroll along like it's any other day, you get eaten. You ought to make a plan if there's a lion in front of you. you. Friends, if you have a problem with making a plan, then you have a problem not just with the counsel of the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, and the repeated axioms of the book of Proverbs that the Holy Spirit inspired for us to learn from. You also have a problem with the Apostle Paul, who clearly made numerous and fairly detailed plans in our passage. But the most important thing I want you to understand is that you have a problem. If you have a problem with plans, you have a problem with the Lord Jesus. You see, we see from numerous scriptures that Jesus was not haphazard. The Son of God made plans. And we get inklings of this in verses like Luke 9.51. In Luke 9.51... Jesus says, or the Bible says, when the, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He, he made a plan that I, the time is near, the time is now, I'm going to set my face, the plan is I'm going to Jerusalem. Jesus planned to go to the cross. Multiple times, Jesus informs his disciples of this plan. I'll give you just one, but there's many in the New Testament. Uh, In Matthew 16, 21, the Bible says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day to be raised. 
When Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, God's plan, but on the things of man, man's plan. Jesus had a plan. It was God's plan. And some of God's people didn't understand it. Some of God's people didn't like it. But the Son of God was utterly unmovable in his conviction to follow the plan of God, even if it led to his own execution by crucifixion. So, practically speaking, uh, what are some tangible ways we can discern if a certain plan is, is God's plan or it's just our plan? If this is really God leading us, or, or, or just us. <laughs> and that brings us to letter B today. If letter A is it's good, and we should, have a plan. <laughs> letter B is how do we start thinking about what might be the Lord's plan? Well, here's one piece. Not the only piece, but it's a piece we must consider. Letter B, we should take the effectiveness of our service into account in our planning while recognizing that strong opposition is not a sign of being outside of the will of God. Let's say that again. We should take the effectiveness, or lack thereof, of our service into account in our planning, while recognizing that strong opposition is not necessarily a sign of being outside of God's will. Why was Paul waiting to go to Corinth. Obviously, the Corinthian church is beset with tremendous problems. We've had 16 chapters of problem after problem after problem. Uh, he loves this church. He cares for this church. He knows there's real problems in the church. Why does he not immediately leave what he's doing and go help this church? And the answer is found in Scripture. Verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus, where he was writing this from. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Verse 9 is why. For a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me. For a wide door for effective work has opened for me. As we plan, we should consider in our planning whether a wide door for effective work has opened up for us. Or if perhaps we should shake the dust from our sandals and move on to other people who are hungry for the Word of God. Paul would not leave Ephesus at that moment, at that place, because at that moment, at that place, those particular people were unusually receptive to Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to remember that Ephesus was the bastion of the magician. I don't mean like David Copperfield. I mean like the occult and the, the sorcerer and all, all the negative, wicked uh, sorcery. Uh, people from all over the empire, they came to Ephesus to purchase curses and magical incantations to either improve their situation or to imperil their rivals. And yet, Praise God, in this long-held epicenter of the occult in the ancient world, this place was experiencing a powerful revival because Paul was being faithful to the gospel and it was changing the hearts of those people. 
In Acts 19, we're told a little bit about Paul's witness in Ephesus. And it explains why he's not in any hurry to run away. Verse 8, Acts 19, 8. And he entered, that is Paul, entered the synagogue. And for three months, Paul spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way of Christ before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them, and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. In this major city, a major revival, and it was making a major impact. Now, Paul's first audience were the Jews of Ephesus. He always took the gospel to the Jews first. But at a certain point, those people, after three months, they became hostile to the gospel. The harvest among them had been achieved. And so Paul then, well, he didn't leave the city. He went to a different people who were receptive. He went to the pagans. He went to the Gentiles. He went to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And what was the fruit of that ministry when Paul pivoted to where there was a wide open door of gospel opportunity, my friends? Well, Acts 19.19 says this. Acts 19.19, and a number of those who had practiced magical arts and brought uh, their books together, their, their magical scrolls, and they burned them in the sight of all. They took their livelihood, their profession, all that was valuable, uh, and, and they burned these books because they were wicked. And, and, and then when you counted up the value of what they destroyed, the Bible says, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. It's a fortune of the devil's mischief was taken away because people came to Christ and they abandoned the devil's playthings. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So powerful was this revival that it started to disrupt and even bankrupt the, the idol makers of Artemis, who was one of the major false idols in the area. And it caused a riot in the city of Ephesus. And a man named Demetrius, who was a, a silversmith, he whipped his fellow craftsmen into a frenzy to attempt to silence this gospel witness that had become so ruinous to his business. I want you to notice, though, in that story, the second part of our point today, notice that incredible fruitfulness was happening at the exact same time as strident opposition was happening. You see, Satan doesn't tend to give up ground easily. And so gospel victory doesn't usually come cheaply. Getting back to our point today, thinking about planning, in our planning, we have to be nimble. And we have to consider, where is the Spirit working? Where is fruit happening? Where is God opening a door for our message? As we make our plans, we ought to consider, is this something God is leading us to do, or are we simply spinning our wheels? We can waste our time perfecting ministries that God is, is no longer blessing. And if we're not careful, we can turn church into a well-polished museum instead of a hospital for those needing the grace of the gospel. Many times, many saints spend inordinate energy trying to gain the attention of the disinterested while failing to disciple the hungry who are standing right in front of them. 
We have a, a finite amount of time in our days. And so I don't invest a lot of time trying to coddle the disaffected or trying to entertain the uninterested. I listened to the words of Jesus to Peter. And he said, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my lambs. And so I try... To, to, to send my very best, to invest my best where? In those who are hungry for the Word of God. Now, sometimes that's lost folks who, who have a window of gospel receptivity and we need to share very strategically. But oftentimes, it's, it's saved folks who, for whatever reason, in this season, are hungry to grow in Christ. Those are the folks I try to pour myself into. And I do this because I, I, I think it follows the philosophy of ministry we see in Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus invested the bulk of his ministry in the hungry. He spent some time preaching to the crowds, but he spent more time, it would seem, discipling the disciples. He would break away from the crowds to invest in this little group of guys uh, and of the twelve, he spent the most time with three of them. In fact, when he transfigured and showed his glory, there were only three of the twelve who were up there. Who was it? Well, it was Peter, James, and John. And very often when Jesus was doing some special teaching, it was Peter, James, and John. And, and, and among them, among the three, there was one that Jesus especially loved. The especially teachable, the especially hungry Apostle John. And indeed, you know what? When Jesus hung on the cross... There was only one disciple who stayed with him. Who was that? It was the apostle John. The one who was hungry, the one he invested in, he got the return on investment from. I want you to remember that the crowds that went from Hosanna went to crucify him in the span of a week. But the ones whom God had generated an open door for effective ministry, those saints, those disciples, the twelve, the three, the one, they turned the world upside down for the gospel when Jesus ascended to the Father. And so I think we need to consider the effectiveness of our service. We also need to remember that strong opposition is not a sign of being outside of God's will. I want you to notice that Jesus was always doing God's will perfectly. Numerous scriptures tell us that. And yet Jesus, who was always doing God's will perfectly, experienced strong opposition almost daily. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father's plan every second of every minute of every hour of every day, and yet he encountered strong opposition all along the way. Let's just remind ourselves. Uh, Jesus encountered opposition from the major parties, such as the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus encountered opposition from the governing authorities, be they Jewish or Gentile. Jesus encountered opposition from the Jews in the form of the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Jewish temple police and the current and former high priests all tried to hold Jesus back. But he also encountered opposition, strong opposition from the Gentiles, whether it was the Gentile rulers such as Herod the usurper or Pilate the governor. Jesus encountered opposition in the form of, of faithless rejection in his own hometown. But he also had an, an utter unwillingness to even permit his continued presence by those more concerned about the conditions of their swine than a man put back into his right mind. 
That is, Jesus received opposition from both the Jews of his hometown in Nazareth and from the Gentiles in the Gergesenes. But despite all of this opposition, Jesus was never outside of the will of God for a second. Now we see the same thing in our passage today, and don't miss it. We see the same thing is true for the Apostle Paul. Look again, starting at verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Verse 9. For a wide door for effective work is open to me. If we wrote the Bible, we'd stop there. But God wrote the Bible, so he didn't. He said, and there are many adversaries. Sometimes saints think, well, because there's this difficulty, because there's this opposition, this must not be God's plan. But friends, have you read your Bibles? Many times, God's plans encourage us, call us to endure hardships like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In rescuing the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, it seemed as though the situation got worse before it ever got better. They went from 400 years of bondage and slavery to then having to make bricks without straw, didn't they? When they were finally released, Pharaoh had a change of heart. And though the Israelites, they had a head start, they suddenly found themselves between a Pharaoh seeing red and the Red Sea. And it took God miraculously intervening, which was the plan of God for them to be saved. And so it was in the days of Joshua. The enemy didn't roll over and hand over the land of, of God. No, the Israelites encountered fierce opposition. But that opposition didn't negate that it was God's plan to take the land. And so it was in the days of Judges. Uh, Gideon was called into service by the plan of God, but the very first thing he had to do was confront the idolatry in his family, and then he had to face down the army of Midian. And so it was in the days of the prophets. It was the plan of God to raise up the powerful prophet Elijah, and yet he faced stiff opposition from perhaps the most wicked king in the Bible, Ahab, and certainly the most wicked queen in the Bible, Jezebel, and their 850 false prophets that had enticed the people of God into their service. The point is, we should take the effectiveness of our service into account in our planning while recognizing strong opposition is not a sign necessarily of being outside of God's will. This is going to take discernment, won't it? It's going to take discernment. Equally, it's going to take letter C today. Uh, letter C is this. Being logical and practical in our planning is entirely spiritual and utterly acceptable. Being logical and practical in our planning is entirely spiritual and utterly acceptable. Look again at verses 5 and 6 in this. And I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. I want you to look at this map, because you kind of need to see a map to understand why this is logical and practical. Um, you, you all are not able to, to see my, my, my red dot laser today, but if you look at what says uh, Caria, and then above it is Asia, and you look between Caria and Asia, about a third of the way up in uh, what's modern Turkey, you see the city of Ephesus. It's a, on, on the coast there. 
And you see that Paul was going to go all the way up on this land route to where the port was in Troas. This was the normal route, and these were the major cities. You go from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum, you go up to Troas, and then you take a boat, and the boat would take you over to where? Macedonia. And you would travel all the way down overland to Macedonia until you get down to uh, Achaia, and once you're there, you eventually get to the Isthmus of Corinth. What I want you to see in this map is that Paul's journey to Corinth is logical. It's the smart way to go. It's practical. It's the way people would go. He followed the major routes of his day, and he went on the most logical and practical route to get to those places. If you study all of Paul's missionary journeys, you're going to see that all of them look like this. He took logical routes he used the primary paths available, and he would stop at the major centers of the day trying to establish the gospel of Jesus Christ all along the way. So friends, it is not unbiblical to be logical and practical. And yes, there are times, there are times, friends, when God interrupts what is logical and practical and calls us to do something unusual, to go march around the walls of Jericho and shout until the walls fall or whatever. But, but he does that unusually so that we would learn to walk by faith and not by sight. But in regards to planning, there's nothing unbiblical with being logical and practical because Friends, the God who gives us common grace, that rain falls on the wicked and the righteous alike, the God who gives us common grace is the God who also gives us common sense. And he expects us to use it. I want you to know that our Lord Jesus affirms that planning is logical and practical. We see this in his teaching in Luke 14. In verse 28, Jesus says, Which of you, when desiring to build a tower, doesn't do something incredibly logical and practical first? Does not first sit down and see how much it costs. Count the cost, whether he has enough funds to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king doesn't do what's utterly logical and practical before going to war with another king? Will he not first sit down and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he will send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. He will do what's logical and what is practical. We see the same in the parable of the wise and foolish builder that you can either build on sand, which is illogical and impractical and foolish, or you can build on the rock, which is logical and practical and you ought to do it. Now, one practical logical and essential deliberation that too often too many saints fail to take into consideration in their planning is letter D today. Letter D today is this. We must be sensitive to the investment of time needed in doing something as unto the Lord. We must be sensitive to the investment of time needed in doing something as unto the Lord. Listen to what Paul says. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, logical and practical, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, logical and practical, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. That's logical and practical. We'll learn why in a second. So that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. 
For I do not want to see you now just in passing. He knows he needs some time with these people. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows, if the Lord permits. The the church in Corinth had major problems, didn't it? They had immorality and infighting. They had worship wars. They had doctrinal disputes over essential gospel truths, no less than the resurrection itself, our last chapter. And Paul understood that, you know what, if I'm going to tone down their their rampant factionalism, if I'm going to tamp down their crass individualism, if I'm going to help uproot their proclivity towards sensationalism, that's not something I'm going to be able to do in just a Sunday or two with just a sermon or two. Paul understood some things take time. So in our planning, are we budgeting that some things take time? You know, in a perfect world, we might be able to attack an item with ruthless efficiency. But in the real world, in our world, in this broken, fallen world, there are usually many matters that must be addressed simultaneously. And so in order to keep unity, maybe we can't move with such urgency. Maybe to keep from having some other essential ministry not suffer and falter, we have to move a little bit slower in the expansion of this other ministry so that this one continues while this one expands. These are the kinds of things a godly biblical planner must consider. But too often, too many saints are too siloed in their thinking. We think only about the area of ministry that most concerns us. It could be worship, it could be technology, it it could be finance, it could be uh, the small group ministry. Our ministry that we're immersed in, we we act as though that's the only ministry and it causes challenges. If we only consider our little corner of the vineyard, maybe just our little church out of all the kingdom, um, then when we want something good done, it's a good thing we always then want it done immediately because it's not just a good thing, it's our good thing. But we have to remember there are many parts to God's kingdom besides our little silo. And so let's, let's put this in a very practical way. Moving with urgency on a building project uh, ought not make that church then become a slave to debt. So you can, you can get one immediately because you can have the bank finance it. But perhaps it's wiser to wait patiently on the Lord's provision instead of being a slave to debt for decades. Or uh, using that same kind of thinking about a building project, um, giving generously to a building project that we can see go up quickly ought not cause us to reduce our commitment to the general budget of that ministry, or what we'll have is a shiny new building at the very expense of the ministries we built it to service. Sometimes we must move with haste. There are times where the right thing to do is to make a timely decision and lean in. Because a situation absolutely demands a timely decision. But many times we're needlessly hasty, aren't we? When when we would be much better served as a house of prayer, spending time in prayer, investing in God's blessing over this matter, and, and, and instead of seeing unity lost because we were unwilling to move together, we wanted to move now, and we left a whole bunch of people behind. 
And so we need to be sensitive in our planning to the investment of time needed in doing something as unto the Lord. Because you know what? We can do something fast, but we don't always do it unto the Lord. And I'm not talking just about excellence. I'm talking about unity. I'm talking about wisdom. I'm talking about not hurting this other vital thing God is doing because we're also making this other thing come to fruition. Paul prioritized staying in Ephesus because there was a wide door open for ministry. And he knew he needed a lengthy time over in Corinth. And he said, you know what? The only way to make all this work is, why don't I travel when I can travel, and I'll spend the winter in the Isthmus of Corinth. And the reason was because sea travel was far too perilous for aquatic movement in the winter. Your, your, your ship would probably get destroyed. And so if I've got to have a season where I can't move, I ought to be where I want to be for an extended season. I ought to get myself there so I can spend the winter and invest some time helping to unthread where the yarn has become tangled. And, and, and this brings us to our last point. Lest we make our plans in stone, <laughs> and even the Lord is not permitted to whittle and chisel this plan. Brings us to letter E today. We must hold our plans, even if the Lord led us to them, even if we prayed over them, even if it makes a strategic, logical, practical sense. We must hold our plans loosely and tentatively under God's ultimate sovereignty. We must hold our plans, no matter how biblical, prayerful, careful they are, and I'm hoping they are, we must hold those plans loosely and tentatively under God's ultimate sovereignty. I want you to listen to how Paul thinks about planning. In all of his meticulousness in this, he doesn't miss the big point. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. So he has a, a plan of time and place. For I intend to pass through Macedonia. He wants to go to another place. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. He has a time for that place so that you may help me on my journey. He's wanting to go to that place to help him to get to the next place. He has a plan for that too. And for I do not want to see you now just in passing. My plan is to do something significant and long-standing. I hope to spend some time to you. And here's the part I want you to see. If the Lord permits. In all of Paul's meticulous, logical, practical, timely planning, he has a caveat. God gets to do whatever God wants. If the Lord permits. In Paul's mind, in the Holy Spirit's mind, in, in writing this scripture, who holds the veto power on when and where the servant of God should go? And the answer is the Lord. The Lord would have to permit it or Paul wouldn't even attempt it. Paul made plans. His plans were practical, logical, careful, thoughtful, but he held them loosely. We hold our plans a little bit tightly sometimes. He held them loosely. He even held them tentatively under God's ultimate sovereignty. And this is where I want to get back to the first thing we talked about, about how some saints are too flippant about planning and some saints are too rigid in their planning. Uh, those of us who are not planners by nature, and that's okay, you need to remember that we need those with the gift of administration or we will generally fail to do things decently and in order within God's congregation. We need those who have a natural or supernatural ability to be logical and practical. However, 
to those of us who are planners, who are good at this, who God has given wisdom and discernment and logic, great. We also need to remember that our plan is not necessarily God's plan. God is God, and he can redirect because his wisdom, his timing, and his ways are always perfect. Now, the Old Testament says this, and the New Testament demonstrates this. In the Old Testament, we're told in Proverbs 16, 9, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. The Bible doesn't say it's wrong for that man to be planning. In his heart, the man plans his course. He's making a plan. That's fine. But at the end of the day, the Lord will determine his steps. If you hold so rigidly your plan that you oppose the Lord, you're going to have to fight God, and he's going to win. And you're going to find it unpleasant. God gets the veto. If we won't listen, God will step in, and he will pour cold water over our hot heads. If we refuse to amend our plan to God's providential realignment in that engagement, well, wait a minute. If I prayed about this, if I used common sense and God gave me a brain and, and, and I looked at what was strategic, why would God ever interrupt a good plan? His plan. The plan that he seemingly led us in. Why would God interrupt and disrupt what was already a plan he seemed to lead us in? Why would God lead us one way that day and then sort of redirect our steps along the way? It's a good question, isn't it? And this brings us to Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. If God is clearly leading for a change in direction, don't fight it. Just make sure you heard it. Get affirmation that it's it and then walk in it. Because God often reveals his plan to us bit by bit. We know this from the Old Testament. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of the dawn getting ever brighter till the fullness of day. He shows you just enough so you don't fall off the path. You don't trip up on the path. You can stay on the path. But he doesn't show you all the way home. God gives us direction, but he seems to delight in not always telling us all the steps and all the timing Otherwise, you know what? We wouldn't need to walk with God at all. We could just hear from God once, go over here, and we'd run ahead, and we'd follow the plan instead of following the Lord. We, we would get through things without getting close to God in getting through those things. If God gave us all the plan, we'd be tempted to worship the plan. We'd be tempted to follow the plan instead of tempted to follow Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, we're going to see God leading this way very clearly demonstrated in the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us of the acts of the church, how the church worked, and we see two really strong examples, Acts 8 and Acts 16, of how God got them going in a direction and then said, okay, now switch. And that switch was strategic, and it was God-ordained, and God bless us that we did it because it made a huge impact. 
We'll start with Acts 16, and then we'll go eight chapters earlier. In in Acts 16, we have the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, at his salvation, was given a God-given call to preach to the Gentiles, to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to go. He knew in his heart that he was to go where no other brother had yet laid a foundation. He was to be the the strategic, pioneering planter of churches. That was his God-given mission. Paul knew that. And so Paul looked around and he used logic and wisdom and practicality and he looked where he stood and he looked to the east and he said, you know, there's not enough significant work across Asia Minor. And he could look all the way to modern India and see they need the gospel. But God had a different plan. It it was still in keeping with God's overarching plan to have Paul minister to the Gentiles, to go to the Jew first, but ultimately to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And and it was ultimately going to almost always be where where he didn't lay a foundation of another brother. But instead of going east, which seemed logical and practical, he ended up sending him west. Turn to Acts 16.6. Acts 16.6. Acts 16.6 says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Here's the apostle to the Gentiles, powerful preacher, and the Spirit tells him, don't. Wow, that doesn't make sense. But he listened. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. They wanted to say, okay, Lord, we'll go here. We're excited, we're eager, we're ready. And God said, no. That's not it either. And so by passing Mysia, they went down to Troas, that port city on the top of of, of Turkey today, and and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. Wasn't how he thought he'd be led, I'm sure. And a man of Macedonia from the west was standing there, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And ultimately, through that trip, he's going to end up in Corinth, and that's why we have a church in Corinth, because Paul listened to God's amending of the leading. Yes, you're going to be the apostle of the Gentiles. Yes, you're going to go to the Jew first. You're going to focus on the Gentiles. You're going to go where there's no foundation. But you're going to go west, young man. You're not going to go east. And so we must hold our plans loosely and tentatively under God's ultimate sovereignty, must we? For what was true for the Apostle Paul is true for us all. And we see this in the ministry of Philip the Evangelist. Go back eight chapters to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we have the the stoning of Stephen the deacon, a a terrible moment in church history, the the first martyr, if you will. And, and, And the Bible says... Uh, in, 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 in chapter uh, 8, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And you read the story, it was a horrible, horrible situation. God used an awful persecution as the catalyst to move the disciples out of Jerusalem and Judea. You see, Jesus had told them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But up to that point, they were were clumping together because the need was so great in Jerusalem and so many good things were happening in Jerusalem. And now we're getting a little bit of a foothold in Judea, but the Samaritans, they're kind of yuck. We don't need them. 
And so God used the pain of persecution. And that was the, the white hot poker that got them moving, didn't it? And it moved those saints into new scenes. Verse 4, Acts 8. Now, those who were scattered, the persecuted believers that ran away from Jerusalem, they went about preaching the word. <laughs> you see, they were scattered, but they weren't silenced. And a man named Philip went down to the city of Samaria, you know, where the Jews didn't even typically travel. They'd go all the way around. But Philip went to Samaria, and he proclaimed Christ to them. And up to that point, they hadn't really heard from the church the gospel of the resurrected Christ. And here's what happened, verse 6. And the crowds, with one accord, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip, and, and they heard him, and they saw the signs he did, and, and four unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. The power of God was upon this meeting and there was much joy in that city. And so in the midst of this great revival where an utterly unreached people group were coming to Christ in droves, the power of God was resident. It was evident. You, you couldn't avoid it. God then prompted Peter to leave and go somewhere else. Why would you ever leave when an unreached people group is coming to Christ and God's hand is there? But I want you to look at verse 26 and you'll see this is what God was doing. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, hey, rise and go. Go to the south. Go to the road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a deserted or desert place. Go to the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, friends, if all we ever did as Christians was look at the logical and the practical, if all we ever did as Christians is consider, where is there an open door? Philip would have never left the revival in Samaria to go to the desolate road. Its destination was Gaza. And yet it was the plan of God to take the gospel of God to Africa, not mentioned in the story up to this point, not by Philip the evangelist, but rather by the man he would encounter on the road in the middle of nowhere, the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch is the, is the number two official. He's second only to the queen and king of, of that country. And he basically ran the country because the main job of the queen, king and queen were to be worshipped. And so he made everything happen. And, and God had been working in this foreign man, this African man, this powerful man's heart for a season. So much so that the Ethiopian eunuch had left uh, Africa and he traveled all the way to Israel and, and he traveled to take part in, in one of the uh, worships of the one true God that was happening in Jerusalem. And, and while he was there, he, he purchased some scripture. We know this because he has some scripture he's reading in his chariot. Now you got to remember, most people couldn't afford uh, their own copy of scripture. And yet he has bought a, 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 a scroll which has to be written by a scribe and has all kinds of rules. It's very expensive. And, and this man bought at least one scroll. Maybe Maybe he bought the whole Bible. I don't know. And he has one of the longest scrolls because he's reading Isaiah, which is a whopper. It's a big one. Costs a lot of money. And where is he reading? In the providence of God, at the moment that the servant left and went and went to the middle of nowhere, to Gaza, that he never got to, by the way, that we know of, he gets to the middle of nowhere and he finds a man whose heart is ready and ripe and he's reading in the gospel of Isaiah the portion that prophetically predicts Jesus' sacrifice for us. Boom. 
And, and this is the significant way that the gospel made roads to Africa. By an African in a high position whose heart was open by the providential realignment of an enormously effective servant who, who had to first leave Jerusalem because of persecution. And then he had to leave Samaria in the midst of a revival to be in the exact place at the exact moment when God wanted it. Hey, friends, Christians can and Christians should make plans. Uh, we should take into account the effectiveness of our ministry and not be overly swayed by the presence of opposition to that ministry. But we should be logical. We should be practical in our planning. We should have a, a realistic timeline in remembering that things often take more time in an imperfect world with multiple things needing to happen simultaneously. But most importantly, we need to remember that we must always keep listening to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, to the Lord's leading. Jesus is our Lord. And so Jesus is allowed to alter our plans. Jesus is allowed to change the timing of our plans. Jesus is allowed to reroute us somewhere we never thought we'd go at all. Because Jesus is God. And we aren't. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for another beautiful Sunday. The weather has gotten gorgeous. The birds are singing a chorus. We wake up to not darkness and cold that seem to envelop for so long. We awaken to warmth and birds singing and, and sunlight peeking in the windows. And we thank You, Lord, for spring. We thank You, Lord, that You've given us a brain. We thank You that You've given us a book, Your holy book. We thank You, Lord, that even in these sections of Scripture that are tucked away that maybe we don't spend enough time mining, here are just five verses from the back end of a book. A book that maybe many of us haven't really chewed through, but we've now spent multiple Sundays. By the time we finish these last three messages, we will have spent 50 Sundays in 1 Corinthians. And Lord, we've learned a wealth of information, and I pray, oh God, that we would get much better at planning, that we would reject the unbiblical notion that it's unbiblical to plan, that we would see that Christians can and should plan, that we would be logical and practical in our planning, that we would look for where you're working, that we wouldn't perfect some ministry that you did call us to at some point, and now we've gotten so good at it and so committed to it, and we have such a heritage in it that we couldn't imagine it not being here, but we really don't see your spirit working anymore. And so we neglect something that you would love to be doing if we would be listening. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would, you would help us to remember that, you know, there are many things you're doing, and we can't always move with the speed and urgency as though this is the only thing that matters in a church or a ministry or even in our lives. You're the Lord of our life. You're the Lord of our fitness and our finances and our family and our friendships and our faith and, and all of these areas. And, and, and if we, we only burrow into one area, then all these other areas are neglected. So it takes wisdom. What do you want us to put a significant investment of time, talent, and treasure in in this moment. And it may not be the same as what you said in the last moment. But Lord, we give you all of our moments. We invite you to be Lord of our timing. 
Lord of our planning, the Lords of our routes. And we believe that you have a plan that is really good and better than our plan. And so we voluntarily lay on the altar our life as a living sacrifice and our plans to your plans. And we ask that you would do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine and far more than we could ever conceive or achieve in our own efforts. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen.